All right, well, we're going to jump into that with 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this has been the cornerstone of this series, Equip. And if we would simply just look at this verse and believe it, what would that do to our behavior? So in other words, if we look at Scripture... In the, in the mindset that Paul was giving Timothy here, what would that do to our behavior? How would we act? What would we do? We would know that all Scripture, is he talking about Old or New Testament here? It says all. Alright, so that's pretty simple. Good for you guys. Okay, It was given by God. We know it was inspired by God to men. So, there's things that it does. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And we know without this we cannot be complete. Therefore, if we have done anything to, I guess, undermine this, we are incomplete. We are not where we need to be. We don't have what we need. So, if we look at it from that standpoint, in order to be complete, we must know what this says. And we must be able to discern what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. But it almost filters through this. This is the worldview that a true born-again believer should have. Can you be born again and not accept every aspect of Scripture? Sure you can. There are people that are wrong all the time. It's all right. I had somebody in my office last week, and I love this guy to death, but we differ on a few things. And, and um, you know, I was, I was bringing correction. It's what I do, you know? Because obviously I'm right. Obviously. And he sent me a text message, he's like, man, I hope you understand, you know, I, I didn't, I, I love you, I didn't mean anything by it, and I never, I, I really don't take offense, so just understand that, but I said, hey, it's cool, if you want to be wrong on stuff, that's your prerogative, I love you anyway, you know, and, uh, but it's like, what if we just took this for what it is? understanding that this was inspired by God and it was given to us. Therefore, if that is true, then we should be able to take the principles laid out inside of this and apply them to our lives. Fair enough? So the promises are true. So promises in there is that we have the right to salvation. Why do we have that right? It's not because you did anything for it. It's you look at the U.S. Constitution. Why do we have the rights that are based in the Constitution? It's not because the Constitution wrote it. It says we find these truths to be self-evident. That men were endowed by their creator. In other words, they were given to you by God. This piece of paper is recognizing them and telling that government's job is to protect those rights. So those rights were not given to you by the Constitution. They are hindering the government from trying to take them away from you. They were given to you by God. You all see that? You guys get that? So the same is true when it comes to Scripture. I'm not trying to compare the Constitution to Scripture. Don't misunderstand me. But what God has said in here is a right that belongs to you. Not because I said so or your church that you grew up in or whatever denomination you used to belong to or anything like that said so. It is because God has said so. Therefore, it is your right. Take it. Right? Take it. But we don't. We, we argue about it. We look at things. We begin to question things. We're like, well, I don't know if that's really what it means. The truth is, is in the world we live today, especially the American church, is we just look at the Bible and say, well, you know, God, I know that's what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. And we live there. And we say, no, that's not what God means by that. But how do we know? How do we know when we're looking through Scripture? We use what we call exegesis. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Why? Because the Scripture we're attempting to interpret can be interpreted by another Scripture, and both of those are inspired by God. You know what's not? Your brain. It's not. 
Can you have God thoughts? Absolutely. But there's a reason it has to be renewed. Because some of the stuff that goes in your head and out your mouth is not from the Lord. Right? Talk to your children. They'll prove it to you if you don't believe me. All right? Now, we have been focused in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So now we've broken this into two sections, because this here is he's talking about being strong in whom? The Lord. Not your strength, but his. What he does. Put on his armor. It's the armor of God. That he has custom made for you. For what reason? So that you can deal with the way the devil attacks you. The methods of which he brings to you. Always through the mind. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Against, but against principalities and powers and, and, and rulers of the darkness of this age. And the spiritual host of wicked. We, we wrestle with them. Does it say that he wrestled with them? No, he says we wrestle with them. That's who we're dealing with. We need this armor. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The armor, here's the picture. The armor is equipped to be built and put on together. Every piece crucial, don't leave anything out. If you don't have a piece, you are now ill-equipped. I use the law of irreducible complexity. I know you guys love when I use these big geeky words, sorry. Don't worry, I had to Google them once too. But I use the mousetrap. There's five components of this mousetrap. If you take one component away, it doesn't work. You don't catch less mice, you catch no mice. It's the law of irreducible complexity. All the pieces have to be there. Now, you can take a spark plug out of your engine. It will still work. won't work right, but it will run. Because one spark plug does not affect the overall ability of it simply to operate. But take them all out. You ain't going nowhere. Right? So there are certain things that must be working in conjunction with one another. Otherwise, you are ill-equipped. So don't take off any of that armor. Put it all on. You have to have it all. You need it all. There's a reason he told you to do it. So if we just simply accept it, okay, well, Paul told me to do this. Maybe I should do it. What would it look like? How would our behavior be? One thing, we'd be a lot more like the Roman soldiers. These guys walked around proud, not afraid of nothing. Because they knew. They're going against an average person. They got nothing to worry about because they're armored up. If you and I are walking through this world, which is, listen, it is ugly out there right now, especially in America, but it's ugly. There's a lot of nonsense that is going on out there, and we can get caught up into that nonsense. Or we can take the positions like, no, 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 no. I'm a child of God. I'll just walk through this just fine. I ain't worried about nothing. I'm prepared. I'm equipped. I can handle this. We can walk through it one of two ways. Either way, you're walking through it. You remember when I showed you the, the, the meme that went around about the mud and the dogs? I should have put that in there today. How deep's the mud? Well, it depends on who you ask. Well, no, the mud's X amount deep. How you process through it may vary. It's the same thing with everything in life. How we process what we deal with only is going to be based off our ability to accept Scripture as truth and walk in that truth. 
So we focus here on the verse 18. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to the sin with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In the NASB, it says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. What we were looking at is prayer being the last focused part of this armor. That Paul did not ignore, because as I said, there are a lot of commentators that have argued, say, well, wait a minute, why did he leave these off? Because these Roman soldiers would have these spears, these lances. They had them. Here's what they kind of look like. And it would be something like that. There's five or six different kinds that they would carry. But the, the main purpose of this one here was to be thrown from a distance to pierce the shield, and then it would bend. As you can see, this is an artifact that was found. It would bend. The wood had rotted off years ago. And then they had to put their shield down because they got this big old thing sticking out of it. It makes it awkward. You can't be as swift. You can't move as fast. So they were forced to put the shield down, which did what? Left them exposed. It was all part of the strategy. So when Paul's talking about here praying with all types of prayer, with all petitions, with all supplication, and then finally the last part, praying at all times in the Spirit. What does that mean? Many of us grown up in some form of a charismatic church have an assumption that was made that has praying in tongues, but is it? We began to break that down last week, if you recall. Looking at what it says, we saw in Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So whatever that means, it means we can do it. Fair enough? Paul tells us to do it. Jude tells us to do it. And then we looked here a little deeper. As we began to define it, we began to look at it. We looked at all the different things that we did in the Spirit, that Paul did, that he purposed in the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit. All of these different things. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So here he is speaking in the Spirit. Fair enough? Okay? 1 Corinthians 14, 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays but my understanding is unfruitful. In other words, words that are coming out that you can't understand naturally, but your spirit is praying. So is praying in the spirit and praying in tongues one and the same? Pretty much. But now you know that. You see, we began to accept things as truth without ever digging in and asking the important questions. How do we know that? Where did we come up with this idea? You'll find that many of the beliefs that you've held deep and long and for a very, uh, maybe the better part of your life, are built upon church tradition more than they are scripture. That doesn't inherently make them wrong. But we should be able to look at this and say, this is what's going on here. Because as you begin to rightly divide scripture, all of the mysteries, so to speak, kind of solve themselves. You'll begin to understand them. And we're going to look at one of those today because as I said last week, what not only did he tell us to pray in the Spirit, but if we're going to be able to do that, we have to know, well, how does that happen? It's crucial, right? He told us to do it. How do you do it? Is there rules that you follow? Is there a step? Is it a language that you learn? Well, I mean, what is it? So we're going to begin to look at that today. And so in order to do this, I want to break down what scripture says now we know the story you guys know where i'm going with this we're going to end up in acts chapter 2 you have to it's a rule acts chapter 2 we know the story the guys were standing there jesus getting ready to go up said listen i want you to tarry in jerusalem so they got in the upper room about 120 of them total they're standing there praying and worshiping god the holy spirit falls upon them they see tongues of fire sprinkled above their head and they and the people gathered around hearing mysteries how do they speak like this i i hear them speaking in my own language peter stands up gives the sermon of a lifetime three thousand people get saved three thousand people get baptized and they go about their day and the book of acts we call it the birth of the church 
Did I leave anything out? I don't think I did. But here's the question. Is that really how it went down? Is that what happened like we think? I'm going to tell you today it's not. Now, the overall premise of it, absolutely. But there are details that are crucial to understand. So, as we get into this today, we're going to kick over some sacred cows. Don't hate me. All I ask, we're going to take them cows, we're going to butcher them up, we're going to put them on the smoker, and we're going to have a good old time. Is that all right? So, here we go. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, so this is Jesus talking, These are the words which I spoke to you which I was st- uh, while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Now, we're going to stop there for a minute. What is he talking about? He said that all things must be fulfilled which were written in three parts. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What did he leave out? The Proverbs. He must not like that book. What about the Song of Solomon? A little too PG-13 for Jesus, maybe. What's he talking about? You have to understand something, and this is the crucial part. We have to read Scripture, not as if it was written to us, but that it was written to a group of individuals at a certain time and place, keeping it in its proper context. Who is Jesus speaking to? Bunch of Jews. You see, the Jews divided the Old Testament into three parts. The law, the prophets, and what they would call the wisdom literature. Sometimes it's called the Psalms. So he's talking the entirety of the Old Testament. So what is he doing? He's telling them all things must be fulfilled concerning him. That tells us something, doesn't it? There's a whole bunch in that Old Testament talking specifically about Jesus. In other words, he doesn't just show up on the scene in Matthew. Every page is ultimately pointing to him. And then what does he do in verse 45? He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. What Scripture are we talking about? He's specifically referencing the Old Testament. He opens their mind. Suddenly, they're seeing it. What do we call that? We call that hindsight. It's kind of like prophecy. We really understand prophecy after it's been fulfilled. The idea of of the nation of Israel coming back into the land was an unpopular idea from a prophecy standpoint. Many people didn't believe it. They thought it was figurative or something like that. Then it happened. And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's exactly what was supposed to happen. Let's go on. Verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Now let's stop. When he says it is written, what is he referencing? Scripture. It is written. This isn't some arbitrary thought. This was written down in advance. It was necessary. It was a requirement for the Christ, for Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Why is he hammering on that? Remember what they believed. They did not think that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be crucified. They thought the Messiah, when he was going to set up his kingdom as the reigning king. 
That is why they're always asking him, are you going to set it up now? Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? He's always, he's getting on. He's like, don't worry about all that. So it had to happen that he would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. Why? That remission, repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. And where's it going to start? Right there at home. In Jerusalem. They are witnesses of these things. What things? That Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected. Verse 49. Behold, here we go. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God, praising and blessing God. Amen. Now, what is the promise of the Father? The Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Father has promised this. Here's what you need to do. Hang out in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. So they know the Holy Spirit is coming, and what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon them? To be endued with power, right? They need that. We see that take place on Acts 3 and beyond. But they need to be endued with power. So how long did he tell them to wait in Jerusalem? He said, hang out. That's it. He didn't say, I need you to go wait seven and a half days. He didn't put an end on that. He just said, I want you to go away because you need this. And this was interesting to me because, as you know, in other parts of the Gospels, he says to go in all the world. and pray. But then he says, I need you to wait. This is how crucial this was. Don't go this alone. You are ill-equipped to carry my Gospel with you. But wait a minute, they knew the message. They watched it happen. They were eyewitnesses. He said, I want you to wait. You need the power from on high. You are ill-equipped. You guys with me so far? I'm going somewhere with this, I, I, I swear. One of the places in which the Father promises in Isaiah 44, starting in verse 1. It says, Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. This is one of many places that talks about him pouring his spirit out upon the people. Where's another place? Joel. Acts 2, you guys, come on now, keep up. So we see the promise that Jesus said, you need to wait in Jerusalem. What were they waiting for? How long were they to wait? He didn't say. John chapter 14, verse 25, it says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So, again, we see that the Holy Spirit's going to come, it is from the Father. It is in the name of Jesus. And what's he going to do? He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said. Do you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that he'll make sure you have the right Bible interpretation. That's not what he says. He said that he will teach you. You know what? You can be led by him. And you can be guided by him. Ultimately, though, it's the promise of the Father coming. So now we're going to jump into the book of Acts. And as we read this, I want you to keep in mind that there is more to the story than what most of us have heard and most of us have been taught. It's no different if you guys remember back at Christmas time, we talk about the Christmas story and the traditions we have, how most of that is complete nonsense. It is not biblical. 
That doesn't mean it's leading you to hell or anything like that. I'm not even insinuating that. But the fact is, is we need to look at Scripture and be able to rightly divide it and see, okay, what is happening here in the moment? So let's start at Acts chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 4, understand the context. This is Luke 2. He wrote the gospel. He wrote the book of Acts. He starts off saying, oh, great, Theophilus. I've written a more orderly account for you. And he's going through. He follows these guys around. He said, verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay? What are they waiting on? What we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for the promise of the Father to be poured out upon them. Verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still don't get it. They're like, okay, fine, you died, all that stuff. Is it now? Can we do this now? They're under Roman rule. The fact that they were under Roman rule is the reason that they had to go to Pilate to get permission to kill Jesus. Because they could not enact corporate punishment. Verse 7, and he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or season that the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So we see a, an extension of the promise that was made that we read earlier. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will receive power when this happens. So we see the event and the net result. Guys, still with me? If I lost anybody. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon them, and the net result of that is the power from on high. Fair enough? Guys, with me? All right. Now let's jump down to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came from a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we're seeing the completion and fulfillment of the words of Jesus. Hang out in Jerusalem. Were they in Jerusalem? Yes, they were. Did the Holy Spirit come upon them? Yes, He did. As a result of that, they began to speak in tongues. And as you'll read here in a little bit, that all these people begin to hear them. But there's a key part that often gets left off most of the time. It's what day was it? The day of Pentecost. We get all excited about that. We wrote songs about Pentecost Sunday, like good charismatics would, right? We get all excited. We're talking about all this enthusiasm stuff going on. But to a Jew, the day of Pentecost was an important day. It is Jewish tradition that on the day of Pentecost is when the law was given from Moses. Moses on Mount Sinai. You can't necessarily prove that scripturally, but that is a Jewish tradition. So what about the day of Pentecost? This is one of seven festivals. And I'm not going to go too deep into this today, because ladies, you're going to get this when you're, if you're coming to the Bible study. But there were essentially seven festivals that were required by God to keep. You see them spelled out in the book of Leviticus and as well as other places. And this is the fourth and final of what we call the spring feast. So you had Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Then 50 days later, you have Pentecost. The fall feast would be trumpets. My goodness, I'm, I'm, uh, help me out, Janet. Rosh Hashanah. 
Day of Atonement, yep, yep. And then Yom Kippur, which is tabernacles. Yep. You're, you'll see, if you study that, especially if you're coming on, on Tuesday nights, that Jesus fulfilled the spring feast. He's going to fulfill the fall feast. But let's look at this here. The day of Pentecost, what is it? Well, Leviticus chapter 23 Verse 15, God is giving the Israelites as a part of their covenant exactly how they are to do this. And I know we all love reading Leviticus. It is so much fun. We look there for inspirational verses. And you should count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling two wave loaves of two tenths of ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. We'll come back to that. You shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year. Without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord, their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goat as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of the field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, what does all of that mean? Let's break this down, what's happening here. Number one. Let's talk about this last part, because it's crucial, and it often gets overlooked. In verse 22, it talks about how they reap the harvest. You need to understand that these festivals always dealt with agriculture. They're always centered around all of that. So here is a time of harvest. When they harvest, they were to leave the corners of the field, and as the harvesters went through, if they missed something, they were not allowed to turn back and get it. The reason being is that this allowed those who were poor to go through, and it was called gleaning. They would glean from the field, picking up what was left behind. So the corners of the field were always left. They had that automatically in anything that got missed. Now, you'll see the importance of this here in a moment. I am not teaching on Pentecost. I want to understand that. But I'm trying to give you the background of what's happening. So you have all of these feasts, seven. There were three of these feasts that every able-bodied male Jew was required to go back to Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle. Those were the three. You had to go back. You'll see that here in a minute. Now, in Passover, we know that Jesus died, being that sacrificial lamb. Unleavened bread, his body in the grave never decayed. And first fruits, he was the resurrection. It is very clear. If you're a Jewish reader, you read that, you pick up on it. If you're an American reader, you have no clue why they're talking about all this other stuff. Just get to the part where he loves me and loves everybody and life is good. Give me more money. Okay. But Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon them. This is the last day in the spring of the year, the last of the feast days. Fifty days in Hebrews, where fifty days passed, seven Sabbaths, fifty days in Hebrew was an omer of time. Omer being a, a complete thing. So let's go back and look at this. We see the field. During this celebration, during this festival, they would all report to the temple. You see all of these sacrifices that had to be made. They would have two loaves on one sheet. Now, 
there's something unique in here that is different than any other time. It says, you shall bake with leaven. Leaven is always a symbol of sin. Every other time it has to be unleavened bread, but yet it's unique here that there were two loaves and both with unleavened bread. And what would happen is the priest would be in the temple and he would bring them up as a wave offering and then a lamb would cross and he'd bring them down. And he'd bring them up again and a lamb would cross and he'd bring them down. What does that kind of look like if you were to draw the symbol out? Up. You guys see that? Okay, is that a coincidence? Maybe. I mean, he didn't stick them out to the side, so I don't know. But it's interesting. The leaven aspect is unique, and the two loaves aspect is unique. What happens during this time, they read from the book of Ruth. Ask a Jewish person why they read from the book of Ruth, and they will tell you exactly why. They don't know. They just always have. So they have some of the same issues that we have in the church. We've just always done this. I don't really know why we do it. But what's unique about the book of Ruth, and I taught through this a few years ago, is the connection because you have a non-Israelite who marries a man named Boaz and is brought into the fold. She refused to leave her mother-in-law. But how did they find one another? Gleaning in the field. Ruth was in there gleaning after the harvesters have come through. You notice how that's connected right there. So there's something going on here. Ultimately, we see the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and the Gentile world, the rest of us, now coming together as one in covenant with God through Christ. Israel proper is still unique, but together we are now in covenant with God. Could a Gentile be in covenant with God? Not unless they would reject their heritage, come in, put themselves underneath the law, promised to keep all of the covenants that were, uh, and mandates that were there, all 613 law, become circumcised, they would, and then they were to be treated as a natural-born Jew. Did I lose anybody? I know this is a lot of technical stuff. I want you to see the importance of here. This is the moment that we see here, the event taking place in Acts chapter 2. Keep that in mind. Now, when we look at this, Understanding this, this is one of those feasts where every able-bodied male Jew had to go back to Jerusalem. There were times that you couldn't, you were unable, sometimes they were injured or something like that and they couldn't make it. But as a rule, they were supposed to be there. This continue on past this event. In Acts chapter 20, verse 13, it says, Then they went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met at Assos, we took him on board and came to Medellin? I don't know how you say that. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite of Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at, at, yep. And the next day, we went to Miletus. I know that one. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, why? We're towards the end of the book of Acts, guys. Why is he hurrying? Because this is something the Jews did. It was something that was in them. They went back. There are other examples of this, but he went back to be there for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, let's can go back to Acts chapter 1, and let's read it again. Remember the story I told you that was happening in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. There's 120 uh, people hear him talking in tongues. They're like, how do we hear all of this in our own language? But we misunderstand the story. We miss some nuance here. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had, which he had said, you have heard from me. John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, here it is. He's trying to keep them focused. Focus on this. This is what's going to happen. Let's jump down to verse 9. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they washed, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, so the Mount of Olives. They returned to Jerusalem, so they weren't there, now they're going back which is near Jerusalem, it's a Sabbath day journey. When they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. Where are they? Well, they're in an upper room. What does that look like? Well, it might have been something like this. Take a look at this. This is an Israelite home. As I told you guys around Christmas time, that when there was no room for them in the inn, and we always picture them running around trying to find some place with an open reservation that says vacancy on it. That is such a misnomer and a misunderstanding of that because the upper room oftentimes is referred to as an inn. And when they would come into these festivals, they would stay with family. And so these upper rooms would be where they would stay because down here you would do cooking, you do other stuff, you have some animals that you could bring inside. These were not large houses. Some of them were bigger than us, but they weren't very big. And so like during the Christmas story, when we talk about there was no room for them in the inn, there's a whole slug of people. They were called back for a census. There's a whole slug of people that are there. They're stuck there. I don't know about you ladies, but how big an audience you want when you're having a baby? So they're looking for someplace else. So here they're in an upper room. Very likely the upper room of which they partook of the Last Supper, the Passover meal. Very likely the same place because they returned to this place. So was this the home of Peter or one of these guys? Maybe. I don't know. It didn't give an address. But this is where they were doing what? They were staying. Now, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Stop. How much time between the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost? It's ten days. Okay? We know they had a Sabbath day journey, which is not a full day, because they're only allowed to walk so far before it's considered work to get back from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Janet, do you happen to know approximately how far that is off the top of your head? No? She, less than a mile. Okay, It's not very far that you're allowed to walk. And so they came back, and they were staying there. Ten days pass. So is it the same day of which they were waiting that the Holy Spirit fell upon them? No. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. Where is that one place? 
it does not tell us. We have assumed that it was the upper room of which they were staying, but that is not what it says. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared on them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You notice it said it filled the whole house where they were sitting, not where they were staying. There is a distinction there. Now, how do we figure out where they were and why does it matter? Well, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. Let's look at this one more time. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. There shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer the bread with seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull, two rams. There shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering, their drink offerings, an offering made with fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of peace offering the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the lord and with the two lambs they shall be holy to the lord for the priest now who waves them the priest where is the priest at not their house the temple that is where these sacrifices took place this is where the worship took place this is where pentecost was celebrated was in the temple. They were at the temple. They were always at the temple. All the time. Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 1 again. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and they began to, sat, uh, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Does this tell us in the temple? No. But the whole house where they're sitting. Is the temple referred to the house of the Lord? Constantly. Through Scripture. Do the uh, disciples spend an enormous amount of time at the temple? Absolutely. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 49. We read this before. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed him. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Where are they at continually? Where'd they sleep? The upper room. Not the same thing. They are in the temple, the place where the presence of God was to be, where the sacrifices took place. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So continually daily with one accord in the temple. This is right after the whole thing. They're drunk, all that stuff. After that sermon, they're in the temple. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. We're going now past the event that we're talking about. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, which is where? At the temple. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they brought the sick out of the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by uh, might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Why were they all healed? Because that power from on high had come upon them. Verse 17, And the high priest rose up, and all those who were with them, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple 
and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who were with him came and called the council together with all the elders, the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So you get it? Where do they hang out at? The temple. Jesus was constantly teaching in the temple. This is the center of where all the activity takes place. Let me show you the temple. Here's a picture of it. There's the beautiful gate, as you can see. What happens to the beautiful gate? Rise up and walk. Peter's causing problems again. You've got the inner courts, the outer courts. You've got all of this stuff going on. Over there, you can see Solomon's porch. We know that Jesus taught there. We know a lot of activity took place there. Now, what do we know is going on? Leave this up for just a minute. We know that the Holy Spirit is coming upon these men. We know that they were required to be at the temple bringing these offerings. We know that people from all over outside of Jerusalem were required to come back to be at the temple on the day of Pentecost. You guys catching the picture here? You see what's happening? Because if they're in the upper room, you're in somebody's home, very likely. There are rooms in the temple. Is it possible they were in one of them? It is possible, not necessarily likely. Regardless, I believe that this is where they are. Now, when the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly it came from a, a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We focus on the end part, but there's a unique aspect of this that's happening on, that, and is going on that's often overlooked. It's this tongue of fire aspect. Because imagine, if you will, you're seeing people and they've got this little kind of like fire thing above their head. I mean, that's the only way I can picture it. Is that weird to anybody else? Am I the only one that's like, okay, how do you picture this? It's kind of like we do a really poor job of diagramming things in the Bible so you know how it talks about when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus? It says that he came down like a dove. So now we make the Holy Spirit look like a dove, which is not how that's read. And it's even worse that when we, we get these flags, old AG churches are, are the worst at this. They get these, these flags, and they, they'll get them all, and they'll hang them up, and they got pictures like that on there. And the worst ones is when they make the dove on fire, because that's just weird, right? Like, oh, yeah. Anyway. What is happening here is going on, this fire aspect. Well, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Solomon is dedicating the temple. That word dedicate means to Hanukkah. We have the tabernacle that gets dedicated. We have the temple that gets dedicated. It gets dedicated a couple of times. But here there's something unique that's happening. When Solomon, verse 1, had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever. As the first temple is being dedicated, being Hanukkah, the fire of God comes down, consumes the offering, and the glory of the Lord fills the entirety of it, so much so that the priest cannot go in to minister. Physically 
cannot go in. You see something similar happen with the tabernacle. Now, put this in perspective of what's happening. You have the temple of the Lord being dedicated, except it's no longer a temple made with hands. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is the connection of the fire coming down, consuming. The glory of the Lord filled the place. In Chronicles, their response to this was, for He is good and His mercy endures forever. But in Acts, they get a unique response. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why were they there? It's Pentecost. They have to be. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Why are they making that statement? Because a Galilean was an uneducated man. They don't speak other languages. They can only speak the one that they know. How are they doing it? Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. It's an incredible event. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? But others mock, saying, they are full of new wine. They're drunk. They're out of their mind. I don't know if you've ever been drunk, but I don't know if you pick up foreign languages in the process. You see, their response was bewilderment. We've got to try to explain this. But what's so unique here is you have a dedication of the new temple under the new covenant and that is God himself residing in man you guys see that you have to get the background of what's happening here it was not in some random room up in a house somewhere this event took place in the temple the temple made with hands but God created a new temple of which the spirit will dwell forever and ever that is you and I That power from on high is you and I. It is on us. It is in us. You guys see that? This is so crucial to get because I'm just laying the foundation going into next week. But you've got to understand the event that is taking place. It was not arbitrary. It was not random. This was laid out ahead of time. Who was at the temple that day? Both Jews and proselytes people that had come into the fold who were outside of covenant with God were both there. You've got two loaves of bread being lifted up, a sacrifice being made, made with leaven. The picture fits perfectly. This is what's taking place in this moment. The question is, what is the net result of all of this? Where do we go? How does this fit into what the equipping of the saints? All we know is Jesus said you need to wait until this moment. Why and how does this affect us? We'll get into that next week.